1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, we see the churches steadily growing as God performs many miracles through the apostles. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. The title of the message is, A Church Without Walls. Well,
2: remember the whole theme of the book of Acts is that Jesus is still working, that he is doing things, but now he's doing them through the church, through his people, but he is still working. And of course, what seemed to be a big interruption to that, the persecution under Saul actually turned into something that spread. So now that is finally, that persecution has come to a close. Saul, who had been the chief instigator, is now off the scene. Now, what's interesting is that God, you know, he does everything well, right? And so right around the same time that Saul gets saved and goes off the scene, the Jews' ire actually is turned away from the church, and it's against Rome. Because Caligula, who became the new emperor around 38 AD, in 39 AD, he set up his own image in the temple of Jerusalem. And you can imagine that didn't go very well. And so with the focus off the church, tempers die down and calmness returns to the Christians for a season. And yet the persecution had got the church to go and do what Jesus had told them to do, to preach the gospel to every creature. Well, that is every creature but one, the Gentiles. And so as we see God lay the groundwork for breaking down this last wall, may it stir us up to see that God in his love wants to fill his house full of those that he died for, amen? All right, Acts chapter nine, verse 31. Well, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, they were multiplied. And so now we see the first result of this peaceful time is that the church can focus on discipleship, strengthening those who had received Christ. And it says the churches were edified. That's what it means to be strengthened or built up. So in this time of discipleship, it mentions that the result of being edified, being strengthened, and discipled, was that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in number two, the comfort of the Holy Ghost. And that should be the focus of our discipleship. It should result in that, in the teaching of the word. As you guys come and you hear the word taught and you're fed and you respond to it and you grow, that should be two results that we should see. The first is walking in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, it means to be in awe of God. And the book of Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I always wonder, what does it mean to be a God-fearing person? It's simple. It means you love the things God loves and you hate the things God hates. That's what it means. That's what the fear of the Lord is, to hate evil. Love what God loves and you hate what he hates. And so here we see that they were living life in that respectful awe of God, loving what he loves, hating what he hates. But also it says they were walking in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. They were enjoying the encouragement of the work of God's Spirit as he made them more like Jesus, as he conformed them to the image of Jesus. And that should always be the result of us gathering together to hear God's word. We should be falling more in love with the Lord and as a result, living our lives in obedience to him. We should be experiencing a joy in seeing the work that God is doing in our lives. And if that's not happening as a result of our services, we've missed the boat we've missed the boat. If we come away and we have any type of other experience and this is not the work that's being wrought in our lives, then we have missed the function for where we have gathered together. Because that is how we're equipped to go out and it mentions that they were multiplied, to go and tell others. This kind of living, one that lives in that respectful awe and obedience to God and enjoys the work of God's spirit in our hearts, making us more like Christ, that kind of living excites us to go out and tell others. When our lives aren't being transformed, we're not receiving the word or the word's not being brought forth, then guess what happens? We don't have anything to say. (laughs) Despite the trend of our culture's hostility toward Christianity, we still live in a relative peace. And as we gather, I ask the question, are you experiencing the joy of God's spirit making you more like Jesus? I hope so. Otherwise, I'm not doing my job. (laughs) I hope so. Are you living in the fear of the Lord? Is your life becoming one that's more obedient to the Lord? Those two things directly impact our excitement to tell others about our Savior. Well, verse 32, it says, And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. So Peter now, he is leaving Jerusalem. It's a time of peace. It's safe to kind of go out again. And the word implies that he passed, that he traveled extensively throughout this region. And Peter must have been traveling to check on the new believers there. Remember Philip, after he went down to go preach the gospel in the desert to the Ethiopian eunuch, it mentions that God transmitted. Ported him to Azotus. That's the type of travel plan I'd like to be on. After he was there, it says he went up to Caesarea, and the entire way he preached in every city he went to. Well, these are the cities now that Peter is passing through. So just like he kind of followed up in Samaria, now Peter's coming down to follow up with all these people that Philip led to Christ in these various places. And so it mentions that he came throughout all this region and finally he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. Lydda is a day's journey northwest of Jerusalem. The road eventually leads to Joppa, which is where we're going to get, uh, hopefully by the end of our study today. And there he found, verse 33, a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. He was paralyzed and he had been bedridden for eight years. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ makes you whole. Arise and make your bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Sharon, they saw him and turned to the Lord. It's interesting here because Peter's ministering to primarily a Hellenistic or Greek-cultured Jewish church here. Aeneas is a Greek name. He's a Hellenistic Jew. And I love it how he comes to him here and he says, Aeneas... I'm going to make you whole. Is that what he says? He says, Jesus Christ makes you whole. How precious this must have been that he gets a visit from Peter. I mean, this is Peter, right? And this great Peter, he calls him by name. He takes time with this individual. And then guess what? He gets out of the way and gives him Jesus. And that's our job. We show people the love that God has for them. And then we give him Jesus. We give him Jesus. Jesus. That's what I want to do (laughs) because Jesus is what people need, not me. William Barclay said, we think too much of what we can do and too little of what Christ can do through us. And so very often, that's what holds us back. We think, well, I can't do that. And of course, the Lord is not limited by the things that we are limited by. So we just need to get out of the way and give people the Lord. All that dwelt at Lydda and Sharon, they saw him, that now he was walking around. And I love Peter. He didn't know anything better, so he just did what Jesus did. That's never a bad model to follow, is it? Did what Jesus did. Make your bed and get up. And he rose immediately. And all the people there, what was the result of the healing? They turned to the Lord. The Lord doesn't just do things so we can all snap our fingers and go, look at the cool things we did. It's to work in people's lives. It's for the benefit of others. Verse 36, Peter moves on to Joppa now, but now there was at Joppa, the word reaches here that Peter's moving around, and there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. Joppa is the modern-day port city of Haffa, and it's right there on the coast, and it mentions here that there was a disciple named Tabitha, who her Other name was also, her Aramaic name was Tabitha. Her Greek name was Dorcas. And this woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. Both the words Dorcas and Tabitha, it's the word gazelle. And it means the creature with the beautiful look or the beautiful eyes. That's a nice name. But what was beautiful about her was this. She was full of good works, generous deeds and alms deeds, acts of mercy or charity. And I love it. It says, which she did. You know, a lot of times we have ideas about things you want to do to help people out. Oh, that's a great idea. That's a great ministry. I'm so glad we have that at our church. But what do we do? I had a great conversation last night. We had a birthday party for friends and we met with people we hadn't seen in a while. And I got to share with one of the individuals there about some of the things going on at our church and some of the exciting things that God's doing, you know, with the food pantry ministry and where eventually we want to take that uh, and see what the Lord does. And she was sharing with me about their homeless ministry at their church. And it was just awesome to hear about the things that God was doing in our churches. This should be a part of it. We should be able to say, which we did, which I did. One of the things we talked about is we encourage people at our church that we should always have something you do outside of yourselves. There should always be some way that you're giving that's outside of yourself, outside of even our church. We should all have our own uttermost parts of the earth in some way, our own Judea, our own Samaria. You've ministered to your family, your Jerusalem. Then you have your Judea, your church, then your Samaria, your city. And then you have, of course, the uttermost parts of the earth. Each one of us should be ministering in some way in that capacity. What are we doing that's outside of ourselves? One of the things we like to do with the shoebox ministry every year is we take our kids with us. We want to let the kids know, hey, we're going to be taking money to spend on this, and that means we're not going to get A, B, or C for you guys. For you're giving up these things. We're not gonna get some junk food, or we're not gonna this is gonna come out of the Christmas budget or whatever it might be. We want them to realize this is a sacrifice that you're making as well as we're making. We want you to be a part of it. And then we have them pray for the kids. We have them pick out items for the kids. It's important because we want them to think outside of themselves. We are so self-oriented in our culture, aren't we? I mean, we don't have to leave our house for anything. There are some grocery stores today. We can do your ordering online, go to the grocery store. They have it all bagged up for you and you just pick it up. And we're going to get to a place where that's going to be the commonplace, which she did. G. Campbell Morgan said, The communion of the saints always expresses itself in service. The church does not express its communion when it gathers together in assembly and asserts it. You know what he's saying there? He means fellowship is not us getting together going, hey, look, we're all together. We're fellowshipping. It's an actual service. He says the church expresses its communion when in all types and kinds of its manifold ministry, it cooperates and ministers in helpfulness and love. That's what we want to be. It mentions here in verse 37, and it came to pass in those days that she was sick and she died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as much as Lydda was near to Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Isn't that amazing? She has died and they find out Peter's in a nearby town. They said, these two guys go get Peter and tell him to come. Now, this shows you how much Tabitha was loved in the church, how much they appreciated her, but it also shows the great faith of these believers that death wasn't more powerful than Jesus to them. It wasn't more powerful than Jesus to them. Normally, at this point, we would have called in the quits. It's over. It's done. We're not them. And so, in verse 39, it says, Then Peter arose and went with them. Now, let me ask you a question. If she's already dead, unless Peter thinks God is going to do something, why does he get up and go? Why does he get up and go? What about that impossible task that God has told you to do? Do you know that God specializes in the impossible? That's what he specializes in. Remember the story of the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt and they kind of were going around in these weird patterns in the desert before they get to the Red Sea as they're leaving Egypt. And God leads them where? He leads them into this place where you've got the Red Sea right in front of them. To the right, you've got one mountain. To the left, you've got another mountain. And then they just camp out there. And it's almost like God's just twiddling his thumbs going, wait till you see the fix that they're going to be in. Wait till you see the fix they're going to be in. And then they start seeing these smoke clouds, these sandstorms. And what is it? Pharaoh's changed his mind, right? And here comes the feared Egyptian army racing toward their vulnerable position with nowhere to flee. They've got them cornered in. And in that moment, they come to Moses. They say, Moses, why do you bring us out here? You bring us out here to kill us Were there no graves in Egypt? And Moses calls on the Lord and the Lord says, you stand still and see the salvation of your God. You stand still. And that's what Moses tells the people. You stand still and see the salvation of your God. He put them in the box. He put them in a corner where there was no way of escape where only he could come through with the answer. God specializes in that. Part of his plan for your life is going to stick you in an impossible place at times. Part of his plan. What about that impossible thing, that part of that plan that God has told you to do? Arise. Go and do it. Arise. Peter arose and he went with them and when he had come, it says, they brought him into the upper chamber and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and the garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and he kneeled down and prayed. He threw them out. They're all crying and weeping and moaning. And look at all the beautiful things she did. Our church will never be the same. She would make all these clothes for the poor who didn't have clothes. And Peter said, you know what? I, I, I need get out. Get <laughs> out. He threw them out. Now, Jesus did the same thing. Remember when the little girl was there and he said, uh, he actually doesn't say Tabitha, he says, which is, it's interesting that her name is this. I want it, you to do your own study on that. But it's fascinating that Peter says the same thing to her, but only one letter different. But Jesus puts them out as well. And when he puts them out, it says he kneeled down and he prayed. The word there, kneeled, it's different than just the idea for kneeling down in prayer. It's actually a position of pleading with someone of greater authority. And I can't think of a better thing to do in that moment, because can you imagine the thoughts that Peter had staring at the dead body in front of him? What do I do? I how does this work, God? Abracadabra, hocus pocus, get up. And it mentions that he kneeled down and prayed, semicolon. See, if Peter was to do this, he had to get rid of that image, those thoughts and all the weeping. It mentions that he'll turn to her, which means he had been turned away from her. He actually puts her out of his mind for a moment as far as the visual, and he gets on his face before God to plead with the one who has all authority. He gets there on his face to remind himself that the God of all creation, the one who breathed life into us at the beginning, had sent him there. And that this was no obstacle for him. This was not difficult for God. It's not like God was going, Gabriel, warm up the throne because this is going to take some serious work here. Get the angels of fire going. We really got to get this pumped up in heaven because this is a dead person here that's got to come back to life. Isaiah said, Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Is there anything too hard for thee? Jeremiah said, The Lord told Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? It's not even difficult. But Peter had the difficulty, he had to get his mind in the right spot. So it says that he turned then him to the body. So after he prayed, he turned him to the body and he said, Tabitha, arise. Same thing Jesus said with one letter difference. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up (laughs) and he gave her his hand and he lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a tanner. Can you imagine what that was like? To receive this woman to life once again. God is in the business of resurrecting dead things. He is in the business of resuscitating things that have died. It is not too hard for him. Where are you at today? Maybe with your marriage or maybe with a relationship with a child or a parent or a friend, or maybe a work situation, or maybe a a personal battle with sin or addiction the enemy would come to you and he would tell you, it's done. It's over. It's too late. You'll never change. You'll never beat this. You'll always be this way. It's who you are. It's who you've made to be. You've, you've messed up your life. It's over. Trust me. I already know the phrases because I've heard them myself. You'll never change. You'll never get it right. Well, God specializes in raising the dead. So even if it's past time and even if it's past hope and even if it looks like all hope is gone and you'll never change, well, guess what? He brings dead things back to life, amen? I'm so glad that God is a God who raises the dead. Well, Peter here, it mentions that he stays in Joppa. It was known throughout all Joppa and many believe in the Lord. So people got saved and it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a tanner. Now, Joppa and Lydda had semi Gentile populations. So it's possible that, remember, Paul spent, Saul at the time spent 15 days alone with Peter, right? Is it possible that during those 15 days with Saul, it gave Peter some things to think about? Peter, I've been leading Gentiles to the Lord. I mean, Peter's like, I don't hear nothing. I don't hear nothing. <laughs> but here he is in these semi Gentile cities, places that generally he would not go. And when combined with God's work in Samaria, is it a wonder then that we find Peter staying with a man who had a profession that would make him perpetually unclean? He stays with Simon a tanner. You know what a tanner does? He deals with dead animals and then he takes their skins and he makes things from them. A famous rabbi said, it is impossible for the world to do without tanners, but woe to him who is a tanner. In Peter's day, a Jewish woman could actually cancel her engagement if she discovered her husband was a tanner. And here's Peter staying not one, but many days. Only one barrier remains for the former fisherman, Gentiles, chapter 10. Now there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band a devout man and one that feared God with all of his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Here we meet this Gentile centurion named Cornelius. Caesarea was the administrative center of the Roman province of Judea. Pontius Pilate, Felix, and Festus, all governors of Judea in the Bible, they lived there. Herod the Great built the city and he named it after Augustus Caesar because there is no good southern port in Judea. He was a centurion. Every centurion we find in the Bible is painted in a positive light. It doesn't mean all centurions were good, but it's interesting to me. A centurion was a leader of 100 soldiers. Each legion had 10 band and 60 centuries. Each band had 600 soldiers. So he was under this band of 600 soldiers that were known as the Italian band, which means they were from Rome. There were two contingents that would do this. One would usually stay at home in Rome and the other one would be abroad at times. And so Cornelius is probably not from this area, but he has been stationed here for a while with his band of 600 soldiers, of which he is one of their six leaders. And it mentions here that he was a devout man. And word there means to be religious or devoted to a deity. But then it qualifies it by saying he was one that feared God with all his house. This shows that Cornelius' devotion was to the God of Israel, as well as his entire family. His entire family had a devotion to the God of Israel. In verse 22, Luke is going to call him a just man, a phrase that was used for Gentile seekers who were known as proselytes of the gate. These would be Gentiles who were believers in Jehovah God, but who had not been circumcised or baptized yet, and thus would be considered outside the umbrella of Judaism. They could go to the synagogue, but they were not considered Jews, were not considered saved, and therefore could not worship in the temple. That's who this guy is. He is a devout believer in the one true God. And yet, he is not accepted by the Jewish community, even though he has a good reputation with them. For it mentions here that he gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. So like Tabitha, he performed acts of mercy to those who were in need and he was a devout man of prayer. Specifically the word here for prayer or that he prayed, it means to ask God things with urgency. This was a man who was continually seeking God and as such he had Old Testament faith for salvation even though he wasn't a Jew. And so God hears his prayers and sends someone to tell him about Jesus. Verse 3, and he saw in a vision evidently or clearly about the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. our time, of the day, he saw clearly an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And so verse 4 says, when he looked on him, he stared at him, he sees this angel, and this angel goes, hey, Cornelius. Cornelius. And he's like, what? <laughs> Isn't it funny? We ask God for things in prayer. And then he finally does it. And we're like, wait a minute. Hold on. God, we want you to move. Not this fast. And as he stared on him, it says he was afraid. He was terrified. And he said, what is it, Lord? Isn't that neat, though? He recognizes that it's God's messenger. He's not some pagan who was nice to Jews. He's a believer in the one true God. And that genuine faith displayed itself in his actions and his prayer life, which ascended like the smoke of an offering and it caught the God of heaven's ear. And so he says, what is it, Lord? And the angel said to him, your prayers and your alms are come up for a memorial before God. And so now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon whose surname is Peter he's lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside he shall tell you what you must do now that's fascinating the angel's right there why doesn't he tell them the good news about Jesus because God has chosen us and the foolishness of preaching to be the method whereby people get saved it says we have this treasure in earthen vessels clay pots that he has used The foolishness of preaching.
1: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.
0: My strong